everybody, this is Richard Sachs, your host on Lost Arts Radio. Merry Christmas. I've been saying that a lot lately because we're not supposed to say it. We're supposed to say happy holidays because you might offend somebody who's not Christian. Um, you know, I, I, if even if they banned Happy Hanukkah or Happy Ramadan or whatever they want to ban, I would say that all the time because in America we're supposed to have free speech, which you probably heard about that, but it... It's not going on at the moment. It needs to be brought back. And um, so anyway, this is our, our show for Christmas Day. I hope you're having a good day, regardless of whether that's a holiday that you recognize or, or not. Um, I'm just really happy to be with you again. We've got uh, Dr. Warner with us again, Dr. Bill Warner, who's the expert on Islam. And uh, this is something like Chapter 5. I don't remember exactly, but he's kindly agreed to do a whole series on Islam, and really it was a selfish reason that I asked him to do that when I found him. I, I realized that Islam was in the news all over the place, and I, I didn't, at, at the very beginning, I didn't understand what that was about. Um, I understand it a lot more now, but I wanted to understand it, and I, so I invited some Muslim friends on the show before I ever heard of Dr. Warner and asked them to come on and explain the basics of Islam and how that related to the terror attacks that were going on and uh, the average, you know, normal Muslim person who had nothing to do with that. And not one of them would come on the show. They all seemed to be very afraid, which I understand now, but uh, I didn't at the time. It was about reprisal from within the organization. So I, when I found Dr. Warner, it was great because he encouraged me to get educated and told me to read the scriptures of, of Islam, which of course would be the way to do it. And not just the Quran, but the Sirah and the Hadith uh, too, because those three go together and they're all interdependent. And you can't really get a complete picture without all of them. So I really got a lot of help from Dr. Warner because he wasn't emphasizing anybody's opinion, including his own. He was emphasizing what Muhammad said and what Muhammad said Allah said, which, you know, should be the two opinions that are really the most important, I would think, in the religion. So um, now uh, it's much clearer to me after reading a lot of the basic scriptures that... Um, the attacks being carried out by uh, the violent Muslims who are screaming Allah Akbar and killing police and killing all kinds of people and doing massive car waves of carjacking and rapes and murders, which you are not supposed to know about all across Europe and now starting in the U.S. as well, not just with guns but with knives and clubs and cars and trucks and any way they can, and they make it really clear that they're doing it for Islam. So that's why I felt like I really needed to know more about it. Now I know the, the idea very simply is that the global rulers who are not friendly toward us are hoping that the violence and the terrorism will make everybody so desperate for security that they'll beg for global tyranny. And that's basically what it's about. The rest is details. So I started reading as Dr. Warner was encouraging, and he agreed to do a series. And you can see all the previous episodes in our archives at lostartsradio.com. So it's and people need to understand this is not about debating one religion against another or anything at all against Muslims, whom I love as much as anybody else. And I'm not just saying that. It's really true. I have great friends that are Muslims that I look up to tremendously. Um, some brilliant ones that I've actually worked with and others that I've met socially, and they're great. 
they don't have anything to do with terrorism, but the ones who are doing the terrorism do. And I totally don't believe in labels anyway, just individuals. Um, but it's about the programming that I'm interested in. You know, what did Muhammad say to do? Because that's the basis of Islam that comes from Allah. And the question is, do we obey? I mean, getting right down to the base question here. Um, do we obey what we're commanded to do? Or do we check it out before we obey it? And that doesn't mean peer pressure. That doesn't mean, you know, actually we'll get into some other things too. It means checking inside your heart. And most of us have totally lost touch with what that even means. So we don't have it available. And we tend to fall for whatever programming there is. And actually, I think Muhammad was an example of that because what I've learned about him so far is he was a really great, solid uh, community member. He was a caravan manager, um, very responsible, good man, didn't, wasn't going around killing or anybody or doing any terrorist acts. And he got met by a supernatural being in the sense that they were not in a physical body. It was what he, I think, assumed was an angel. And because it was a supernatural being that told him, you know, the news that he was going to be the prophet, he didn't want to be the prophet. He thought that was all crazy stuff and he was going to kill himself. And the angel and other people encouraged him not to do that. And his family said, no, you're a good man and you can be a good prophet and you should do this. And don't just, you know, take, don't try to escape by killing yourself. Forget it. You do your job. And so Muhammad was really a good person from what I can see. But because this was a supernatural being, not in physical form, probably all bright and fiery and everything, that it, it just kind of went without saying that you would do what he said and that he would tell you the truth. So it brings up a lot of questions. And I'm talking kind of fast because our time is limited here. But just think about some of these scenarios. If, if somebody else, if I told you that I saw an angel or God and God ordered to start a new religion and everything else was wrong, you guys who believed in your own religions were all going to hell, and this is what you had to do, how would you respond to that? Or somebody else? Um, what determines what you believe and don't believe? Is it how supernatural it looks? Or is it the quality of what it says? So, Muhammad was a good man, a caravan manager, but because he ran into this supernatural being, um, that sold him. And he, he never, apparently, you know, from what we can tell from the writings, never questioned whether the being was telling him the truth or was legitimate. Um, so when the orders changed, when, after he was, had basically been kicked out of Mecca because of all the contention that he caused telling everybody else they were wrong and going to hell, then he got to uh, Medina, and the orders gradually changed into attack and murder, and going out and, you know, murdering people if they wouldn't convert. He wasn't questioning at all, apparently, at that point, assuming that the angel was right, that these people did need to be murdered. They were kafirs, is what, it's worse than the N-word, it's a very derogatory term to anybody that won't become Muslim. And um, they had to be killed or enslaved. And or, and or used for sex slaves or made into dimmies, which are basically servants and lower-class citizens. So he wasn't questioning at that time. He was probably completely lost in the rush of power of being the, um, being the prophet and getting a big part of the booty from all of the um, stolen loot that he got from taking over everybody's houses and killing the people and taking, taking their stuff if they wouldn't convert. 
So, you know, most people who are born into Islam today, and most of the Muslims are born into it today, it's, you know, so many hundred years old, and um, they're raised in it, they love it, it's their culture. I mean, I can't speak for all of them, everybody has their own feelings about it, but most of the Muslims that I've met, and I've met a lot, they really like the culture, the mutual support, the common ground and understanding of life, all those really nice things are very comforting. But, you know, there's a tiny minority that find the verses in the three scriptures of, of Islam that tell them to be terrorists, to kill, to invade, to rape, to steal, to lie. Those things are in there. In fact, I'm involved in uh, clarifying some of those references for, uh, with a number of people who are talking to me who are Muslim teachers that teach other uh, Muslims about the religion. And they start out saying, no, 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 it's all peaceful. And I'm showing them the exact quotes where it's uh, not peaceful. And it talks about cutting off people's heads and cutting off their fingers and their hands and um, stoning them to death for various things. And if anybody tries to convert out of the religion that they have to be killed, of course. And Or if they're homosexual, they have to be killed, thrown off buildings or whatever. And the question is, if, you, if somebody tries to convert you to a belief system that advocates that, or if you're born into it, you've been in it all your life, and it's the most natural thing, it's like part of your environment, and then you finally realize what is in there, and, and it's not honest to just look at the parts that are not violent. It, you know, you really need to look at the whole thing because you're a representative of it. What do you do? So we're going to talk to Dr. Warner about the next aspect tonight, which is slavery. And people don't realize that's an integral part of Islam. And we need to know what they mean by it, not what we think about it. And what Muhammad uh, explained that slavery was and how it should be performed. So let's do that with Dr. Warner and then I'll come back and I want to give you some uh, final thoughts that I think are really important. I'll talk to you then. Welcome you guys, this is Richard Sachs. <laughs> Speaking on Lost Arts Radio on our show for Christmas Day, actually. Merry Christmas, and I actually prefer to say that several times because you're not supposed to say it anymore. But I um, <laughs> hope you're all have, having a Merry Christmas, and, and it, you don't have to believe in Christmas. Whatever you're doing for your holiday, I hope you're having a good time and a, a very good rest and getting refreshed. We're going to continue today with our discussion on Islam as an educational topic because there's so many things floating around about it in the news right now that are, you know, such big headlines and everything that we actually want to back it up by some um, actual exploration of what is the important opinions about Islam, which my understanding now is that there are two people, two individuals that are important to know what they think. One is Allah, the main one, and the other one is Muhammad. Um, who, from our previous lessons, you know Muhammad is the perfect example of um, permanently how to live, and so we need to know what he said and showed that that was. And Dr. Bill Warner is with us. We're going to talk about the uh, the next topic in our series here, which is slavery, and uh, try to look at it without preconception and come in and just find out what Muhammad and Allah thought about slavery and what they did with respect to that. So welcome, Dr. Warner, and thank you for being with us. Oh, glad to do it, Richard. I think we enjoy ourselves, and I'm hoping the ones who listen to us enjoy our, us as much as we enjoy each other. Yeah, it's actually just fun. I, I, I'm really enthusiastic about learning anything important, which covers a lot, and I, I'm, I know that you are too. So 
it's, it's really our privilege to be in the front seats of the class here as teacher and student. <laughs> okay, so um, I, I like to, as a general theme, start out so that we're not just talking to the people with a lot of background and pre-understanding of the subject and go back to the beginning. Now, most of the people in America and, in fact, in a lot of the world where people may be listening to us just think have certain thoughts about slavery. Number one, it's bad. Almost everybody thinks that. And they think it's bad because of a loss of freedom of the person who becomes the slave. So what I'd like to do is go back. Um, we're only talking about slavery in respect to Islam right now, although other people have done it too. And I'd like to go back to Mecca. And uh, when Muhammad changed from just being a really respected businessman and caravan manager to being a prophet, which he was asked to do when he met this supernatural being that he later decided was Gabriel with help of his family members pinning down the identity, in their opinion anyway, and I guess that stuck. Um, How was was slavery um, a common practice in the kind of... um, multi-religious base of of the Arabic community that Muhammad lived in, and how was the transition from that to what became the institution of slavery in Islam? Well, everything in Islam is pretty much derivative. That is, it comes from the world around Muhammad. And one of those things is slavery was part of the culture in Arabia. I mean, it was just a given. Now, this is nothing critical at all of the people living in Mecca, because when we go back into history, it appears to me that all cultures have some way of of using slavery, because there's rough, hard, dirty, dangerous work to be done, and better if you could get somebody else to do it for you. And if you didn't have to pay them, that would be even better. Mm -hmm. So slavery was part of the Roman, part of the Greek, part of the Chinese. They all had different ways of doing it. But uh, no, no. And the reason we know this is, is that Bilal was one of the slaves who was a black man who was converted to Islam and he was later freed. So we know that there are slaves in her. And then, of course, when we get to Muhammad, once he goes to Medina, he has a lot of slaves. Mm-hmm. Okay. So slavery was part of the culture. Nothing was okay. wrong with it. So when, when Muhammad's in Mecca and, and they've got, I, I don't remember how many religions there were, but lots. 360. 360? Okay. I've often uh, wondered about that number. It seems a bit high, but that's what it says. Okay, okay. So I wonder what the population was then. Do you know? You know, we don't know. We can get off into a sidebar here. When you start looking at some of the nitty-gritty details about Mecca, it's Mm -hmm. pretty clear that the Mecca of the Quran uh, did not exist where it did now. But that's, that's just, we'll accept it as it's normally talked about. Yeah, you're thinking that it might have been where Palmyra is. Right? Yes. Okay. Yes. But um, that's that's really unimportant for our process here. That that's a whole other show. Okay. So 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 do you think that most of the different religions condoned slavery at the time? You know, as you read, I don't even think they condoned it. They just accepted it like the weather. It did, okay. there didn't okay. there didn't even seem yeah. to be a need to justify it. Yeah, that's a really interesting phenomenon because if you look at it honestly, it makes you wonder how many things do we just assume that we never think about that somebody coming from the outside would be surprised that we believe or do. I think there's more than we would like to admit. (laughs) I agree. When you're in the middle of it, it's pretty much impossible to tell. Right. So anyway, if it was like the weather and there was regular slavery going on 
all over and, and not really even news that it was happening, then was there any kind of a change when Muhammad officially recognized himself as the prophet and started teaching that everybody should convert to Islam? Was, was there any effect on the local practice of slavery from that? The only effect we have is that Muhammad's period in Mecca had two different phases. The early phase, he was a prophet who brought in the 361st religion, and it is inherent in polytheism that polytheists are quite tolerant. So when he first came in with his new religion, they were like, fine, put it over there. I mean, it didn't create any ruckus. But then when he started telling them that their ancestors were in hell because they didn't worship the right God in the right way, they became irritated. And one of the ways they became irritated was Muhammad finally had to leave Mecca. But before that, they tried other things, which was basically hassling him, mocking him, and making fun of him. Now, when I say him, his new converts as well. And in one of these, uh, a slave named Bilal was being tortured in order to make him give up his Islam. And Abu Bakr, who was Muhammad's early convert, says, sell me the slave. And I, th- I think he offered to trade. I think he gave one black slave for another. He traded him a Kafir slave for a believing slave. And I think, I'm working from memory here a long time ago, he may have thrown some money in as well. Mm-hmm. So the, so the persecution of the Muslims, which, by the way, there was no blood ever shed. We need to get that clear. Yeah. There were some pranks and stuff. But anyway, the in, in any society, the lower you are, the more you get the crap. And so the slaves who converted to Islam got more crap than the powerful who converted to Islam. Okay. Okay. So are you saying that this slave was being uh, tortured by a non-Muslim owner? Yes. To make him give up his Islam. I see. Okay. 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 So that slave was pretty brave under the circumstances becoming a Muslim when he was going to get tortured for it. Yes. Yes. Okay. And, and indeed, we find that the people who believed Muhammad really believed Muhammad. There are very few stories of people who said, you know, I bought this at one time, and now then it's, I don't see it as being anything but error and left. There weren't many of those. Muhammad was a very persuasive man. Okay. Okay. All right. So, was, was there any, I guess, it, how many years was it, 13 or something, that, that Muhammad was in Mecca after he became the prophet? 13 years. Mm-hmm. 13 years. Okay, and during that time, was there anything of significance that happened about slavery? None. Okay. As a matter of fact, the only thing that's going to happen as we deal more and more with slavery is, is that slavery plays a bigger and bigger part of Muhammad's career. In, in Mecca, he was a, a caravan trader, but there's no record of his buying and selling slaves until he becomes a Muslim. Once he becomes a Muslim, in, in, particularly in Medina, the doctrine of slavery is fleshed out in full. Okay. Now, the, the num- your ability to have slaves, of course, probably depended on your financial status, right? Like everything else in life. Yeah, because slaves aren't free. And, no. I mean, <laughs> they're not free to buy. And so, um, Muhammad, if I remember about that time, had married his boss. And yes, she was Khadija. she was pretty she was pretty well off, and so was he because of his pay from uh, the caravan work. So they had enough money to buy some slaves, right? Yes, and you know, I'm they may you know I don't know if they had slaves in their family or not. I could look that up, but I don't remember. Okay, okay, all right. So 
nothing of any real significance changes during that period. And then after he goes to Medina, um, is it, do, do, as far as slavery goes, is there anything of significance that happens starting then? By the way, let's drop back to Mecca. It's very okay. interesting. Muhammad's father's name was Abdullah, which in Arabic means slave of Allah. Now, okay. this is intriguing because here we have the term slave and Allah in the same name, which, by the way, Abdullah is a very common name in Arabic, and yet it, it's a slave of Allah, which indicates that there was an Allah before Muhammad. Oh, good point. Right. Yeah, it also means that at least in that sense, being a slave is a really good thing. Well, the, the whole thing of slavery is developed in full. Muhammad called himself uh, a slave to Allah, and Allah refers to his Muslims as being slaves. And it is said that true freedom is slavery to the Sharia. Okay, okay. It's an, inter it's an interesting idea. Yeah, I, in, in connection with that, I mean, I can't go into all the context again, but the discussion I was having this morning that I mentioned to you off air, um, I asked the man I was talking to about Sharia law, and he said, well, yeah, of course Muslims are in favor of Sharia law. It means following God. Yes. Who's going who's to disagree with that? Yeah, I mean, Allah's law, God's law. I mean, why would we prefer man's law over Allah's law? Yeah, well, there are reasons that I do, but I mean, the question seems to be a good one on the surface. It does. It, it it almost seems like people of most religions would say that, right? Their first allegiance is to God. Mm-hmm. Which they would just interpret that as saying, "Well, then you believe in Sharia law." But I mean, that's not really the subject of slavery. But I thought it was interesting that it came up. Well, now, slavery is included in Sharia, because the Sharia is simply a practical. Sharia is simply the process of applying the doctrine of the Quran and the Sunnah to a current day, day life problem. In other words, if you're in a space capsule, a question comes forth, how do you do your prayers? How do you do your wuzu? So you have to get some interpretation, which is called a fatwa, on exactly how you go about doing this. So the Sharia is a constant interpretive process. It's not just a fixed book of laws. Okay, so there's not really a code written down somewhere that includes the whole Sharia law. Um, well, we have things like I'm looking up and over my uh, desk, there's Reliance of the Traveler, which is a book of judgments, if you will. That is, agreed upon interpretations. Uh, that, For instance, here's an interpretation that jihad is a method of advancing Islam. Mm -hmm. Now, but it's like a constitution in the sense of we have a constitution that can be changed by amendment, but even before it's changed, different scholars read different things into it. And so there's sort of a dynamic truth that centers around the constitution. In the Sharia, there's a dynamic truth that centers around the Quran and the Sunnah. Okay. So it's a okay. process of interpretation. But, but the only static written body of, of words and rules and understandings is the three basic scriptures. Yes, right? Quran, Sarah, Hadith. Now, by the way, in the Sharia itself, we're getting off on a sidebar here about the Sharia, the work of old scholars has a lot of weight. That is, the Sharia is a very conservative docu docu document or, or process in okay. that most, most of the details have all been worked out. And so what it is, you just sort of tweak them a little. My favorite Sharia judgment is in so-called Palestine, a woman 
petitioned the Sharia court to have her husband only beat her once a week. She says he beats me every day, and that's too much. Okay, okay. So therefore you'd have a fatwa, a judgment given on, well, should this man be beating his wife every day? So that would be a new possible interpretation, but uses the same Quran and Sunnah. And the reason it's important in dealing with slavery is, is, is that the Sunnah lays out slavery and how they're to be treated and whatnot. Okay, okay. And of course, to decide that about the, the beating case, you would have to let the man explain all the reasons for having to beat her every day and it not really being sufficient once a week, right? Right. I mean, this, little, this, this is a sidebar we're working on here, but it just struck me that here we have, this is the power of Islamic doctrine. Here we have a woman who says it would be fair if he would only beat me once a week. That's acceptable. Yeah. Think about what she just said. Well, she's asking for a lot. That's a seven times reduction, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move along here to Slade, okay. Richard. Okay, so anyway, um, it, you know, in addition to what I was asking about starting in Mecca and moving into Medina in respect to slavery, since you've given a lot of talks about slavery, how do you normally lay those out? I mean, rather than a timeline what do you like to do in, in terms of trying to give somebody an understanding of what slavery means from an Islamic point of view? Well, first off, it's sanctioned in the Quran, and it's sanctioned in the Sunnah of Muhammad. And there are a lot, I mean, I have written a small book on the Islamic doctrine of slavery. And although it's a thin book, nevertheless, it's surprising that it exists at all. Never mind how big it is. So, uh, the one of the most the thing that comes up to me in the way of slavery is there are some rules about sex with Muslims. That is, they're forbidden to have um, adulterous affairs. Uh, they're not supposed to rape except under special circumstances, and that's what I'm getting to. Okay. There is a special category of human being called those whom your right hand possesses, and those are slaves taken by by war or force. And it turns out. That if you're a slave, if you're a, a Muslim slave, your master has the right to have sex with you, and the Quran clearly and most explicitly lays this out. There's even a thing where it goes further to say there was one hadith, which is part of the Sunnah of Muhammad, in which they had conquered this tribe and they weren't having sex with the women because they said, "Look, their husbands are right over there," and so Allah, who solves all of Muhammad's problems, comes out and says, "Oh." Once you capture the women, they're no longer married, so you can have all the sex with them you want. They're no longer married women. Right. So here we have a law dictating the rules of slavery. Let's fit this now to modern times where one of the things that shocked some people in Islamic State uh, in uh, the, the Middle East openly has sex slaves. Now, there was a big hoobar about this because it's like, oh, wait a minute, sex slaves, they can, that, that's not Islamic. One of the things that I actually enjoy about Islamic State is, is they make the doctrine of Islam very explicitly clear, and they never flinch. That is, they don't try to come up with some sneaky reason as to why um, slavery is not applicable. The Islamic State says, no, it's very applicable, and it's applicable now. Okay. So... Uh, this is just one way in which the Quran refers to slaves, is, is in terms of sex slaves. Uh, is, is there a difference between sex slaves and regular slaves? 
Well, I think <laughs> I think the sex slave is there for sex. Now, I'm not well, trying right, to but, but say I, that. Aren't you, you're you're allowed to have sex with any slaves, right? Yes. Now let's 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 look at our own heritage here. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was condemned for owning slaves, and even condemned furthermore for having sex with slaves. Right. But I find this interesting. No one wants to dump the blame on Muslims for having sex with their slaves because somehow or another what Muslims do is okay. They get a cultural pass. That's, I guess that's their culture. And, and I think we have to come into another part of our society here, which is we no longer, look, I think sex slavery is nothing more than sanctioned rape. Let's get this clear. So yet we don't have any pushback by either feminists, do they even exist anymore, or churches, because many of these sex slaves are Christian women. So right. we not only have sex slaves, but we have an acceptance of sexual slavery in our society because, Richard, aside from freaks and weirdos like myself, who else gets upset about Christian sex slaves? Certainly not here in Nashville, Tennessee, which is called a Protestant Rome. I've never heard a public statement by any minister who condemns sex slaves. Now they don't even want to talk about it. You're talking about... Is this the countries where slavery still officially is sanctioned in, what was it, 11 different countries at the moment? You know, I didn't, that's an interesting question. I didn't know whether slavery is sanctioned at all anymore. Uh, it's still practiced. I, uh, by the way, one of the interesting things, I'm going to do a little sidebar here on Islamic State. I always read what they say. They publish a magazine called Dabik or Dabik. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. And it, okay. they produced an entire volume of this, Slick Magazine, on sex slaves. And what they're saying to people is like, look, don't condemn us for having sex with our slaves. Muhammad did it. Allah says it's fine. And one of the things that was interesting is there's some accountings of sex slaves in the Sirah in which uh, they're handed out like um, luxury toys. And I know there was one in which Muhammad gave these sex slaves to his top lieutenants, and one of them, Umar, said, I don't need her, so he gave her to his son. So we had this mm -hmm. casual passing of women from one hand to the other. Right. Yeah, I remember reading that. That's pretty interesting. So you're, <clears throat> I think you're saying that it's practiced now by ISIS, right? Mm -hmm. but, but it's also practiced... I, th I think you had mentioned a couple of lessons ago that there were something like 11 countries that were still, um, that slavery was fine or something like that. Do you remember that? I do not remember that, Richard. I'm not denying it. I'm just saying I don't remember it. Okay. If, if, I, if I came up with a question now that, you know, are there Muslim countries now where slavery is, is practiced I guess that's not the same because it could be practiced and not officially. Um, well, of course. I mean, it's practiced in the Sudan, we know. Boko Haram, remember the famous, well, it was a f not a famous, but an event that caused a blip because even Michelle Obama, give us back our girls, the 200 girls that were captured. Yes, I remember that. Well, they were put into sex slaves. I heard an accounting of a black man uh, what was his name? Hmm. Francis Bach. I may have already covered this. At mm -hmm. Vanderbilt University, have I told you this story? I don't remember. Go ahead. Anyway, there was a, a former slave who gave a talk at Vanderbilt University here in Nashville, Tennessee. And I thought, well, I want to go hear this. I've never heard a, a former slave give a talk about anything. And so I went, and the number of people who came out to hear this man were maybe 20 people. I looked around the room, and I found it intriguing 
that there were no black Americans in the room. And I Wait, thought to myself, when, was, it, was this recent that you went? Oh, to this was it? maybe ten years ago. And and when and where was he a slave? He was a slave in the Sudan. The oh, story okay. went like this. He said he and his sister went to the market to sell beans. It starts off so prosaically. Then the jihadists come into the marketplace, kill his parents, and capture both him and his sister. And as you always do when you take slaves, you, you enter a forced march period so that you don't think about trying to escape. Right. And his sister was raped, gang-raped every night. Right. Now, by the way, when his talk was over, I said to him, I says, Francis, I said, you've not clearly said who your captors were, but I know from the circumstances they must be Muslim. Is that true? He said, yes. I said, well, here you are speaking as a, he's now converted to Christianity. I says, here you are speaking as a Christian, condemning Islam and their treatment of black Africans. Aren't you afraid? He looked at me and he says, of course I'm afraid, but now that I'm free, I'm willing to die. <laughs> wow. Which I thought was a very powerful statement. I was very, I mean, I'll, ne I'll yeah, never forget that. Now that I am free, I am willing to die. Yeah, amazing. I mean, that, that's kind of the same spirit that uh, that slave that you started out talking about well, had converted to Islam, and he was willing to die for that because he was right, being tortured. Exactly. And he wasn't even free yet. Right. Yeah, amazing. But by the way, f slavery is 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 considered to be a benefit to humanity. I, I love Islam in the sense of how they can come up. If you told me, said Richard, I want you to write down, Bill, I want you to write down a good reason for why slavery is beneficial to humanity, I'd come up, uh, Richard, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. But Islam can. And you, this benefit of slavery is, is that if you convert to Islam, you stand a chance of being freed. Oh, well, then, but if you, how are you freed? By converting to Islam. So you see, Richard, the beauty of Islamic slavery is, is it gives you a chance to become one with Allah, to become a Muslim. So this is not a something of suffering. Now there was the fact that they killed your parents, maybe. Yeah. But uh, or your husband and and your brother. But mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, it is an it is a pathway to the slave being a slave can become a slave to Allah. Then he might be freed. Right, and it's not just a pathway; it's an incentive. It's an incentive. Maybe before you wouldn't have even, you know, wouldn't be on the top of your list to be converting, you know, in the near future. But I tell you what, it, Richard, if this white boy were captured in as a slave and all I had to do was say there is no God, but Allah Muhammad is his prophet and I can be freed as a slave, <laughs> I'd be all on it, dude. You'd be sitting, let me think about it just a minute. <laughs> For about a microsecond. How about this? <laughs> Make sure I pronounce it right in Arabic. I don't want to do it wrong. Exactly right. Amazing. Um, okay, so, uh, you know, Let's say that you, you've laid out that as the beginning of a presentation to beginners about slavery. Um, tell me, what are the important points that people need to learn about it? Well, the, one of the things that's interesting about in the Hadith and the Sirah is it gives the race of the slave. I was struck by this. And the sex of the slave. So Muhammad's favorite sex slave was a white She's described as being fair, which is another term for, or at least very light-skinned woman named Miriam with wavy hair from Egypt. She was a Coptic Christian. Uh -huh. um, let's see, where was I going? Where, where, remind me I where I was you, going. You, well, you were saying that they gave, what was it, the race and the religion? Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. So Muhammad had white slaves, he had Arab slaves, and he had black slaves. 
Now, okay. one of the things that I did in my book on slavery was I went through and I believe I counted up 42 words in Arabic that uh, mean slave. Now, this is an interesting comment within itself. In English, we basically have one word for slave. But in mm -hmm. Arabic, they have all these technical words, which means that they're deeply involved in the slave trade. You can judge a man's knowledge by his sophistication and use of trade terms. That is, if you're talking with an accountant, you'd expect to hear certain words to come out of his mouth, double entry, bookkeeping, mm -hmm. uh, and whatever. So every trade has its own language. And one of the marks of somebody who's serious about his trade is, is he has a very detailed technical vocabulary. So I thought it was intriguing that Muslims, that Islam has a word for a white slave, a black slave. Uh, I don't know if they have one for a Hindu slave or not. But the one I also remember is, is that uh, they have words for an escaped slave. There's three words. There's, a, there's one noun, which means an escaped female slave, mm -hmm. an escaped male slave, and an escaped child slave. Well, what this tells us is, is that there was a lot of slave business because they needed a detailed knowledge. Okay. And you said there's 42 words that mean slave? Yes. Different kinds of slavery. There's okay. also an interesting uh, thing about the black slaves. Abed, A-B-D, when Osama bin Laden issued a call to America before 9-11, it, it was the video when I saw it says, we're going to get attacked in a jihad attack because he called America to Islam. Hmm, okay. Now, Muhammad called his enemies to Islam before he would attack them. So here is uh, when Osama bin Laden called America to Islam, I says, oops, we're going to get whacked. And by the way, we did. But I did that simply by knowing the rule book. And on slavery, one of the rules is, is you have different names for different slaves. And he referred to Africans in that talk because he used the word Abid. Now, the word Abid, A-B-D, means slave or African, depending on its context, which I find an interesting comment within itself. Hmm. Right, as if they're synonymous almost. As if they're synonymous. And Muhammad's word for uh, African slaves is their raisin heads. Okay. Which, to be fair, I thought was a description of, if you have nappy hair, you could say that you look like a raisin head. Now, he did not intend that, by the way, to be scurrilous, I don't think. It was just a right. common term that was around. Right, right. Interesting. Okay, so um, slaves were seen as a form of wealth, I guess, right? Of course. And of course, do we even have what, what slave can you afford for a sex slave? There are writings on sex slaves. There was one, I think, was it Ibn Khaldun, a historian? Anyway, they list who make the best slaves. Now then, since Muhammad's favorite slave, sex slave, was a white woman, what does this tell you that the Sunnah implies about which slave would be the most expensive slave in the slave market? Ta -da. Whatever Muhammad thinks is the best, right? White women. There are even remarks about this, that in talking, there was a travel thing done in uh, Arabia, and he talks about how that the wealthy men all have a white sex slave, but if you can't, the uh, Abyssinian women were also considered to be good, and some of the Nubian women. So there's a discussion about which slaves, which race of slaves makes the best sex slave. And one of the things that I find interesting about all this is this is done without guile. That is, this is not done in some like 
sneaky speaking out of the side of your mouth. This is like, well, here's the way it works. Right, right. It's it's like what we were talking about before, the assumptions of what's normal. Right. And, well, this was normal. The, yeah. And, so and if it, you're really poor and you want a sex slave, you get a black one. Was it, was it normal in the whole Arabic culture, or was this something exclusive to Islam? You know, I don't know um, whether it was Arabic. After Muhammad died, the Arabic peninsula, the Arabian peninsula, became so quickly Muslim that if you pick up the story of studying Arabia through Islam, it very quickly becomes Islam and Arab become just one and the same word. And this is seen, by the way, in the, the West has, and the Kafir has always been in denial of Islam. And one of the ways it denies it is, is that the invasion of the Middle East was not done by Muslims. It was done by Arabs. It was done by Saracens. So we've, we have this, interp- and it was, Spain was not invaded by Muslims. It was invaded by uh, Moors. And Europe was not invaded by Muslims, it was invaded by Turks. The okay. West and classical civilization has always wanted to close its eyes to the true nature of Islam and will not even say that it was an Islamic invasion, it was an invasion by whatever racial group. Right, right. Or at least you could say that the, the people currently in charge of Western civilization seem to want to say that. I don't well, know if it's true of, of the general population. It was less true in the formation of the country, but now then, I find that, Richard, people like you and me are unusual. Here in Nashville, Tennessee, very few people want to talk about Islam, and if they're religious leaders, they desperately don't want to talk about Islam. And if they're politicians, they desperately don't want to talk about it. They want to maintain their professional ignorance. You mean if they're religious leaders of some religion other than Islam, they don't want to talk yes. about it? Yes, they don't want to talk about Islam. Other than they, really all to, they all love to talk about, oh, I met this really nice Muslim. So, I mean, I know that's a diversion, but but it's an interesting point. So, since you bring it up, why do you think they don't want to talk about it? They're frightened. Okay. The church has become very feminized. They, they're compassionate, they're kind, they're caring. They'll help you if a tornado blows your house down. Mm-hmm. But... They're not going to stand up and debate anybody about Islam. Because what happens if you do that, Richard, if you debate about Islam, and then you become, one of the most common questions I'm asked is, aren't you afraid? I say, well, yeah, of course I am. But the biggest pushback I get is not from Muslims. The biggest pushback I get are from apologists for Islam, and those include religious leaders. So religious leaders don't want to talk about Islam because there would be maybe some noses out of joint in the uh, church, and they might get an article written about them in the local paper in which they are racist, Islamophobe, hate-filled bigots. I found that calling names is a powerful deterrent. Right. Yeah, especially if you call them louder. (laughs) I I agree. Um, And in fact, uh, you know, before you were on the show, and I mentioned this in the first lesson, I had invitations out to several... Uh, Muslim friends to come on and talk because I just wanted to know what was true and at that point I had read the Quran but I hadn't done nearly the study that I've done you know with your encouragement and none of them were willing to come on and I think they were all afraid to say anything and well that, that if was you actually from know what you're talking Islam. about go ahead I'm sorry if you actually know what you're talking about they don't run into many people like that look 
most people don't want to deal with this issue at all. They'd rather it just all go away. And it was December 10th again, uh, September 10th, 2001. That is the day before 9-11. Although they just, people do not want to deal with it. And uh, I keep hammering on Christians because they're commanded by their scriptures to care for the persecuted church. And they very clearly won't do that. Mm-hmm. But then you know, again, I mean, I, even I agree that I, I would prefer that it goes away, too. I think that would be great. It's just I haven't figured out a way to have that happen. Well, if the past is any harbinger of the future, I think we've got a problem on our hands. It ain't going yeah. away. So, um, so I suspect, I'm trying to think of when you're giving lectures on slavery, what kind of questions and disbelief and things come up. And um, Well, one of the things we need to talk about is, is that, it, this is, I find this intriguing as well. Kaffirs, including Christians, are very willing to take all the blame for slavery. Oh, yes, we have slavery in our past. Oh, it was so terrible. We were so wrong. We were like all little Hitlers or something like that. And the Southerners who did it were even the worst of all people. Right. They're perfectly willing to talk about our guilt and our suffering, but they're completely unwilling to face the fact that when the white man on the wooden ship brought the slaves from Africa, he didn't go into the bush and capture them. He bought them from a slave pen and had a, there were bills of sales, invoices, and money exchanged hands, and the money went into the hands of an Arab slave trader who was a Muslim. This was consistent. So it's interesting. I run into people who are more than willing to accept the guilt of slavery for themselves, but, oh, don't let it be on any Muslims. No, 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 we did it ourselves. And yet, if you look at the impossibility of this, you look. Sailors are like truck drivers. When the TV sets are in the trailer that the truck driver is driving, he didn't make them. He went to a center where they were put in this truck and money was exchanged and he drove off. He did not go make them. They don't make anything in the truck, just like sailors don't make anything that they're hauling. They buy it or trade for it. So in spite of the fact that for every slave that was sold in America that makes white people feel so guilty, there was a Muslim who sold it and captured it. Right. So, so you're saying the kidnapping was done by Arab slave traders, yes. not by the ship owners or people like that? Of course that. not. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. First off, let's say that they did pile off those wooden ships to go catch the African slaves. There were 12 million slaves, roughly. That's a figure that may be wrong or right. But there's millions of slaves that were brought... Think about it. If every time a white man sailed up in a wooden ship, they got down and went off into the bush and captured slaves, people would move back from the coast. You see what I mean? Yeah. That is, they wouldn't stay around to be captured as slaves. So, no, they were captured in the interior and brought to the coast to be sold. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that is really interesting. I never really understood the logic to, even if your ancestors had done something, you know, really bad or... or why is it your like, fault now? Like, why, why are you responsible for that? I don't, I don't understand that. I don't buy that. I don't buy, I mean, I'm a Southerner raised in the South, born in the South, and I don't accept any responsibility for the slave trade in the 1860s. Sorry, gang, I wasn't even there. And yet, for yeah. some reason, I love this thing about occasionally, well, blacks need to be given money for what they, they were taken as slaves. And you, you, you look at that, and it's like, how's that going to work? If you moved here from Poland in 1950, do you need to pay for it too? And what if you yeah. I was in Boston recently, and both my cab drivers were from Africa. Now, they're uh-huh. here in America from Africa. Does that mean they'd get repatriation too? 
No. Yeah, I, I, I think it's just a, a technique to, to further the division between people, really, to, to keep that in the, in the forefront. Because really, if, even if there was somebody that was a slave that did some terrible crimes and then they had children, the children who may be African Americans now, so to speak, although I would just call them Americans, there's no reason they should pay for their grandfather who did some kind of crime. I mean, even if it really happened, it's irrelevant. No, no, no. I mean, I, compl- I, mean, I agree with you. I agree yeah. with you. So, okay. Um, so, one of the aspects of, of a point that you would let people know is that the Muslim slave trade included the business of kidnapping people in Which African was the most countries. ruinous part. It's estimated that for every slave who wound up on a slave ship, Five others had to die, what we, in military terms, call collateral damage. Okay. And this collateral damage is clearly written, remember uh, Livingston, Dr. Livingston, I presume? Mm-hmm. Well, he wrote a book on the slave that included word, uh, knowledge about the slave trade, and it was extensive. There were some rivers in which the paddle wheels on the boat could, had to be watched carefully because of the bodies in the water. And he asked mm-hmm. a, one of the Muslim slave traders, why do you do this? And he says, it is our right and they will become Muslims. I see. Okay, so that gives you a lot of insight into the internal justification of the kidnapping. Oh yes. Now there was, uh, and so the the but for every slave put on the wooden ship, there were five. It was an estimate. That's what Livingston gave an estimate of five who were killed. Because what happens? You attack the village. The jihadists attack the village. Now, by the way. They're only supposed to attack Kaffir villages, but it's very clear that when they ran a little low on Kaffir villages, they the Arab slave traders would uh, capture slaves from that were Muslim. Okay. As a matter of fact, there's a great deal of legal fatwas given in which the black jurists of Africa keep reminding the Arabs that like, hey, you're not supposed to be capturing black Muslims. You're only right. supposed to be doing Kaffir blacks. So, but they would capture them, and after they captured them. All the elderly and the sick and the very young were left behind because there's going to be a forced march. The first order of business was to get them as far away from the town as possible. And if a mother uh, was carrying both ivory and a baby, if she got tired, the baby was killed because the ivory was more valuable. So many died on the the business of marching from the village to the slave pens. So there was a lot of collateral damage. This is clearly reported, by the way, by... uh, Muslim voyagers into the interior of Africa, Ibn Battu, I think I've said his name perhaps halfway right, records the slave business, the, the jihad slavery in the central Africa. He, by the way, when he took his tour, he bought him a black sex slave. First thing, to, it was one of his first purchases for the trip. Uh-huh. Okay. I love these little right. nitty gritty details. Yeah, yeah, it makes it more real, you know, if we can make it personal and dimensional. So they would now one one thing that strikes me is they weren't thinking very clearly about the justification and maybe they didn't need to but they were saying that it's okay if we kidnap people for slaves because if as long as they weren't muslims because then they would have an incentive to convert but mm-hmm. they they would be ruining that when they put it on uh the ship run by some non-muslim because how are they going to convert at that point you know, I think because they left non-Muslim gold behind. <laughs> oh, that's kind of a different subject, though. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that, Richard, it is astounding what money will do to people's character. Uh, yeah, I have noticed that. 
In fact, <laughs> yeah, that can happen in, in very subtle ways. You have to really pay attention for it, you know, not to happen to any of us. I think it's always a, a challenge to well, make sure. That, that scripture, I think, from the letters of Paul, money is the root of all evil. Yeah, it could be, but I mean, I, I don't really agree with that. I think money can do fantastic good. Oh, yes. And it's just falling for certain things in exchange for the money might not be so good. I agree with you. Right. Um, okay, so we've got a situation all over Africa where people had come from Arabia, right, where the where Islam started. And, mm-hmm. they, went, and they went into Africa as part of the geographical... Uh, I guess you'd either call it invasion or liberation, depending on your point of view, where they go into other countries in order to give them the the um, privilege of becoming Muslims, and they would enslave some of them to give them special motivation to become Muslims. Everything would have to be justified by spreading Islam, I assume, right? Well, now, we have this, by the way, in the Sunnah of Muhammad. Muhammad repeatedly... Uh, took slaves, and he, uh, the, yeah. the first big slave raid he did were Jews, the third tribe. The 800 male Jews were killed, and then the younger Jews were taken in as adopted into, as Muslims into Muslim families, right. and then the women were sold into slavery. They were parsed out into sex slaves and regular slaves, and mm-hmm. Muhammad used the money to buy armor and horses. Yeah. So what we have here is the financing of jihad was done through the capture and sale of slaves. And so we can see this in the slave-taking process in Africa. And by the way, there were slaves taken in, in of Hindus as well. There were slaves taken as whites. There were over a million whites taken into slavery out of the Mediterranean slave trade. So hmm. we'll have to say this about Islam. They were racially equal. They believed in racial equality when it came to slaves. Yeah. They didn't enslave yeah. anybody and everybody. Right, right. So I guess we could say they were tolerant. Yeah, exactly. Um, So you mentioned one specific um, incidence of slavery, which was the uh, capturing the Jew. What was the name of that Jewish village where they killed the men, 800 of them, and enslaved Uh, the rest? This was not Kaibar, but it was still, it was a fortress outside of Medina. Okay, so it was... There There were three Jewish tribes in Medina. And they lived in their own uh, compounds. So this was okay. a... Now later, by the way, he's going to uh, capture some Jews in Kaibar. But he made them... I don't remember him taking slaves. He left them to work the land. Okay. Okay. All right. So, yeah, because if they become dimmies, then that could be a money-making long-term investment process. Well, it is. It means you now have basically a form of light slavery in which... You don't have to administer them and feed them. They'll take care of themselves, take care of their own illnesses, raise their own children. But, yeah, uh, and how are you defining white slavery there? Because people don't know that term very much. Did I say white slavery? Yes. I didn't mean to. What, how did I? We may, we may need you to correct said, something said I said. That, yeah, you said that here we have an ex- When they left them on the land to become dimmies, you said here we see an example of white slavery. Oh, okay. Uh, what I meant was light Slavery. That is, you're not chattel property, but and so you can leave, but you're not going to be able to take anything with you, and all your property, your land, and everything becomes that of Islam, and you the, okay. they have you a tax system which was fifty percent. So they okay. took your land, left you to tend the land, but you, I mean, you could leave, but you weren't going to take anything with you. So that's the reason I called it light slavery. Okay. 
And, and in that particular case, we have this number of 800 men that got killed. Do we have any idea of how many slaves came out of it? You know, I would pres- I, you would figure roughly 800 of them because usually birth rates are about the same for men and women. But that's a guess on my part. Okay. And we do know what he used it for. He used the money for a jihad. Okay, well, it could have actually been a bit over 800 if it's statistically figured like that because the kids could be both sexes. Well, this is true. There's a poignant little detail in which all the male children were, all the males were lined up and they raised their robes to expose their genitals. And if there was pubic hair, they were to be killed. Got it. I just, okay. I just thought that this was in, once again, the little subtle details of the nitty gritty. If you're making a movie, you, you'd have all the young kids lined up raising their robes and pubic hair. Is that because that's when they become dangerous, supposedly? Well, for some reason, the, all the adults were males were killed. All the youth males were adopted into families as Muslims. Mm-hmm. Now, by the way, there's something intriguing here. Remember I told you that some women were taken as sex slaves and mm-hmm. other children were taken in? There's a rare genetic disease which is shared by those in Arabia and Middle East Jews. So this genetic disease was, in, was inherent in some of the slaves they took. So we could say that this rare genetic disease is the gift that keeps on giving. Okay, so that, okay, because of the uh, sex slavery practice. Right. So as a okay, really so now, as far as what led up to them taking those slaves, um, what I had understood from the reading that we had is, is that um, they were just invaded because they were Jews, and two other villages out of the three had left, and, and their property was taken after they left. But one of them wouldn't leave. What, what's the story about that? Well, the, there were three Jewish tribes. And they, had, they were willing for Muhammad to come along because Muhammad was supposed to be a judge uh, for disputes. That was part of the, what he was supposed to do. And they were yeah. agreeable because there had been a civil war in Medina. And so the Jews were like, they had, divided, they had fought amongst themselves as allies of the two Arab tribes. So they were willing for peace to be brought in. And if Muhammad could deliver this, that would be fine. Okay. But you see, the, the, the politics be damned because what happened was, is that Muhammad had claimed himself to be part of the lineage of the Jewish prophets. And the rabbis took a look at him and said, you're no Jewish prophet. Are you no prophet in the lineage of the Jews? And nobody told Muhammad no when it came to theology. So that set up the the thing for the three tribes were eliminated in some fashion. The first two tribes were exiled and left all their money behind. Other than, And the third tribe, uh, was, he brought in a... After he captured them, he brought in another Muslim to deliver a judgment. Saeed did the judging, and he said, adopt the children, kill the men, and sell the women into slavery. And Muhammad said, you have delivered the judgment worthy of Allah. So that settled that. Okay. And, and, the, and they weren't leaving because they thought it wouldn't be a good idea to lose all their property and their money and their houses. And well, they all, the, Jews, the three Jewish tribes gave us a lesson. They also, when one tribe was attacked, the other two tribes wouldn't come to their aid. Okay. So, Muhammad took them down one at a time. Right, 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 right. But now, supposedly, okay. he's, the, the, this, the Sira says that they were involved in plotting against Muhammad. It's not clear how this exactly happened, but it is said that that was the reason. However, it's not, uh, that, that was the reason they were killed and enslaved. 
But then well, again, there were other Jews that were going to be attacked and other Arabs who were going to be attacked, and they didn't betray anybody. So I think yeah. it's just an excuse. I, I had heard the same thing. I heard, I don't know if this is correct, but connected with the Battle of the Trench, yes. or Trenches, or something like that, that the, the Jews in the village where they were all killed had given the attackers in that battle a way to get in and attack the Muslims, and so they were seen as traitors. Is that possible? Yep. It is indeed, and some version of that is true. But, okay. like I say, even without betraying Muhammad, other people were invaded, captured, and sold into slavery. Okay, okay, okay. And by the way, there's something interesting about, I said, the race of the slaves is mentioned. Uh-huh. Many of the black, as a matter of fact, almost all of the black slaves who were male were castrated, not just by cutting off the testicles, but also the penis as well. Right, and uh, is there some... Uh hadith or something about that that explains it? No, it is not, but there is a hadith which is interesting because there was, uh, Muhammad was told that one of the slaves in Mecca, who was a black man, had had illegal intercourse with some woman, and so he sent Umar out to kill him. Mm-hmm. And it turned out when he found him, the man was down in a well, and he said when he came out, he told, came back and told Muhammad, the man does not have any sex. So we know right. that this was a black slave who had been fully um, castrated both testicles and penis. And that would be normal for black slaves in general, yes. right? Yes. In their practice. Okay, okay. All right, and then nowadays, if, if you look at, um, you know, going from it being normal at that time and actually a, a form of uh, wealth generation to get slaves and maybe get them at one price and sell them at another like people do with herds of animals right now, how, how is that seen currently in countries like Saudi Arabia and other Islamic countries? Well, what they say is, is that we don't practice slavery at all. And the slave okay. market in Mecca was shut down in 1960, I think. So it was operating until very recently. And what they like to say is, oh, well, we're sort of beyond that. And then this, they wave their hands and cover up the fact that the Sunnah is permanent. It doesn't go uh, yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. It's fixed. What it is, is is simply Islam is not strong enough at this time to insist upon slavery. If Islam wins, then the Kafir will become slaves again. But there's already slaves being taken in Mauritania and other places in Africa. It, it may be under the table, but it's still in existence. Okay. Now, okay. Muslims, by the way, say when they talk about their slaves, you would think you were listening to Southerners talk about how well their plantations were on. They say, oh, our slaves are happy people. They love being slaves. We treat them well. And yeah. those go on and on and on about how Muhammad said you should treat your slaves well. Well, yes. Richard, my point is, is I'm a slave. You can't treat me well enough. <laughs> yeah, if you still have this addiction to being a free person, I guess that Which would be Which I true. do. I, I confess openly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I guess it just depends on, on the attitude a lot because I, I've spoken indirectly with Muslim women in current time in various countries who apparently are completely happy being seen as property just because you know, they're married. I can't. You're not dealing on an axe, a part of Islam which I've never figured out. In my opinion, the woman gets the short end of the stick every time, and yet they seem to be very happy. So uh, there's obviously something about women I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, Well, uh, that's certainly not universal because there are others that escape or that wish they could escape. But um, 
But yeah, that's a phenomenon I, I don't really totally understand either, other than if you're programmed with a certain way of thinking long enough and everybody around you is agreeing with it, there's a tremendous peer pressure that I think works subconsciously to eventually you, you get rid of the stress and the, the, um, you know, the, the dissonance by saying, well, yeah, I actually believe that too. Right. Well, obviously they do. Yeah. So if you were going to go from the, the slave situation where officially it's been shut down, you know, for what, 50 years or some 50, 60 years to other countries in that are not Saudi Arabia, that are not um, the high profile countries. Are there places in Africa where it's openly acceptable? I think in Mauritania it still is. Okay. And, and by, by the way, there's some other aspect of this we're not dealing with. And yeah. that is, in Arabia, and in the, the workers who come in, who are Filipino or Hindu, are mm-hmm. treated worse than slaves. That is, once, and women who come in to clean work in the house are frequently raped. So mm. this whole business of slavery, there's what I will call slavery light or is almost slavery in which if you're not a Muslim, you can be treated badly simply because you're not a Muslim. And mm-hmm. if your previous history allows you to take slaves, then abuse, beatings, rape, not paying them in, why well, these would be normal as well, because who is lower than a slave? Okay. And, and you're mentioning rape, too. I mean, rape is an issue right now i mean it's it's attempted to be covered up in the news but it's happening on such a massive scale uh, notably in places like sweden that it it's got to have some connection to this whole thing too because the the people they're raping are not slaves um, well now no, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. i think you may let's let's act like an attorney here those whom your right hand possesses that's the sword hand can be raped now then it's all big on how, how far down the line you want to go with the jihad. If it's a one-person jihad, then you can say, well, she's my sex slave. I've captured her. Do you see what the point I'm making? Um, she's not a sex slave. I've captured her. No, I'm not sure what distinction you're making exactly. Okay, let's say I'm a Muslim. I'm in a European country, and I physically overpower a woman who's okay. a kafir. She is yeah. now under my control. Therefore, right. I can view her as a short-term slave here. That is, I've taken her as a jihadist. That is, this is this is this is to advance Islam. I'm not just horny, and mm-hmm. so I'm treating them. This is in subjugation of the kafir woman. So this so is a kidnapping, th- basically. It's it's a small jihad and a small temporary sex slave, but okay. we can see this is all throughout Europe. I mean, and by the way, it is not reported at. I have access to what I'll call informal reports. I guess they would now call it fake news since it's no longer yeah, in the yeah. New York yeah. Times. That's right. But people who are in, in Sweden now, hardly any of the women will go out walking alone. And yet these are all multiculturalists who praise the, the problem is not Islam. The problem is us, Richard. Yeah, yeah, it's their fault for sure. So... Um, Okay, so this is basically, though, a kind of jihad that, that whether it's in the kidnapping or temporary rape in, in situations like that, it's the advancement of, of Islam, which is to benefit the people that they're overtaking, I assume. Well, it subjugates the kafir, and it enhances the power of, look, 
I'm not an Arab and I'm not in Sweden, but you better believe uh, that I can't help but know that if you're a Muslim and you get to rape a, a uh, Swedish girl, that you're not laughing and hollering and talking about it back with your buds, man. I mean, you're the man now. You got over on the kafir. Right, right, right. So you, 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 have, you have strengthened Islam and you have weakened the kafir. This is all mm-hmm. jihad. All right. So what's going on then? I mean, just in general, and this is a larger subject and we'll get into it, but I noticed that with the things going on like, like is happening in Sweden and, and the, when something is exposed about the slavery issue or things like that, we're not hearing, at least I haven't heard any, um, how would you say it? Any regret on the part of modern Muslims anywhere that I haven't heard anybody saying you've touched on something fascinating here That is the Europeans feel badly about their past if it was killing Jews or capturing black slaves, okay? Yeah, Muslims have no shame about their history at all They never come up and say you know what we treated those people badly that never happens There's never any shame because why they're doing Allah's will. We like right, to think they, didn't, our, they didn't do anything bad, right? They didn't do anything bad. They didn't do anything wrong. And so therefore, if I feel guilty about it, that is, if the people who had invaded America had been Muslims instead of white Christians, and the same mm-hmm. process of killing the natives had taken place today, mm-hmm. there would be no special scholarships if you're Native American to go to a university. It just happened. Get over it. Right, and in fact, the, those people were benefited because they got a chance to become Muslim, I assume. Exactly. So there is no sense of shame or self-discovery of like, you know what, that was not so good. We need to not do that anymore, and we were wrong when we did it. Islam never looks into its history and finds anything wrong. So what are the things, well, this is another big subject, I know, but it would be interesting to see, all right, in line with the last thing that you said, what are the real things that some a really devout Muslim would consider feeling regretful of because they did wrong? Well, I'm not sure what it would involve. If it involves the now, if they stole from a, we need to. This gets off into Islamic ethics. If they touched right. another Muslim's wife, if they cheated okay. him in a business deal, if they lied to him or they killed him, these are things that are all wrong in the Muslim community, the Ummah. So treatment of other Muslims has a pretty high standard in a lot yes, of ways. Yes, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, treat, you're to treat another Muslim as a brother, but there are 12 or perhaps 13 verses in the Quran which state that you can treat the kafir any way you need to to advance Islam. Right. So therefore, there's no guilt necessary. There's not okay. a sense of wrong. If you, harm the, if you harm the kafir with the intention of advancing Islam, then it's okay. All right, so as far as lying to Kafirs is concerned, um, let's, let's keep talking about that for a minute because that, that seems to combine a number of different sub-elements. For example, um, I was just told by a teacher of Islam a few days ago that I mentioned to you even that Muhammad forbids lying. And yet, um, you know, so, so how do you lie to Kafirs without um, make you know, imp- impugning your own quality in some way. Well, uh, first off, when she says that you're not supposed to lie, there's odd that there are explicit hadith which indicate you can lie. So, 
I find that again and again we I run into, quote, Muslims who talk about what Islam is, but there's no support for Islam and the doctrine. It's only support in their, is in their assertion. Okay. They, well, I so, say I'm a Muslim and I say it's true. Well, I say I don't, it's not true until I hear Muhammad or Allah say it. So, what do you think about um, examples of when it's okay for a, a good Muslim to lie, and how is that in relation to um, dealing with kafirs as opposed to dealing with other Muslims? Um, can you give us some kind of a perspective on that? Well, no, it's interesting. There are reasons... When Muslims say they're not supposed to lie, they're referring to amongst themselves. But even amongst themselves, Muhammad gives reasons to lie. Okay. Now, it's been a while since I've read this hadith, but one of them is, it's, if it just makes people feel better, you can tell a lie. You can tell a lie if it will help resolve a difference or an argument, particularly amongst men and women. And then you can okay, lie so under... In other under words, you, you look really great in those clothes. I think that it's, you made a great choice of what to wear tonight or something like that. Well, the, the, I, it explicitly covers white lies. Okay. So I, I find that to be interesting. But Muhammad repeatedly advised Muslims to deceive the kafir if it would advance Islam. That is, a Muslim okay. is not supposed to lie to you as just an ordinary piece of business, but if it will advance Islam, for instance... You could deny something that's in the doctrine of Islam that's actually true, but by denying the truth of the statement, then you're making Islam look good, so therefore it's okay to lie. Okay, so this is so one I, reason that when I listen to Muslims talk about anything about Islam, and when they tell me, oh, this is what Islam is, I always have to go back and say, well, what does Muhammad say? What does Allah say? Not just what a Muslim say. But this, of course, the lying business gets into integrity and ethics, and Islam has its own ethical system. Everyone presumes that it has a golden rule in its ethical system, but it uh -huh. does not. Because you see, the problem with the golden rule is, do unto others. Well, which others, Bill? All others. But uh -huh. in the Islamic okay. doctrine, you have to know how to treat a Muslim or a Kafir until you know what they are, because you treat one differently from the other. One time I was talking with a Coptic Christian who was a used car salesman, and I wound up buying the car, actually. It's an important detail. Okay. But he was astounded when I started talking to him about being a Coptic Christian and that I knew about the suffering that the cops did. Mm -hmm. And he was start because, I say this, Richard, because very few Americans know or care about the suffering of Christians in the Middle East, and I'm talking to Christians about this. Well, and they wouldn't know what the word Coptic meant either. I mean, almost no one knows what that means. So, C-O-P-T-I-C, Coptic. Cops, C-O-P-T-S is what the Egyptians originally called themselves. We need to touch on this. Most people think in looking at Egypt today that it's always been this way. Egypt has been Islamicized and Arabicized. It used to be a Coptic culture. The pharaohs were not Arabs. So that was their name for themselves. But anyway, okay. I said to him, I said, uh, matter of fact, I looked in a conversation, I said, you must be Coptic Christian. He was startled when I said that. <laughs> but anyway, I said, uh, and then he showed me his cross on the inside of his wrist. Uh -huh. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, if you're talking to a Muslim, an Arab from the Middle East, you have they have to figure out whether you're Christian or Arab or Muslim in order to know how you how to be treated. And he sort of drew back, and his eyes got big. He says, you really do understand, because he said that's exactly true. There's a certain that was the exact question I was about to ask you. Is you know, if they treat people differently, don't they have to check who you are before they know how to even relate to you? 
Well, that's exactly what this Coptic Christian said. He said, they have to know whether I'm Christian or not in order to know how to treat me. Here, here's an example of this. There was This is just a, a trivial incident that came out of the news in the last few days. There was a Coptic Christian soccer player, and he was the best player on the team, and he was, he was going to be awarded some award, sports award, based on his ability to play soccer. And then the coach found out that he was a Christian. He couldn't even play on the team after that. And before he, they knew he was a Christian, he was their number one star. Was this a, a team of some country somewhere? or it's what kind of team? Oh, it was like a national team or something? I don't remember, or really I don't know. I just know that this kid played on a soccer team and was going to get okay. an award until they found out that their best player was a Christian. Then he not only didn't get an award, he was thrown off the team. Wow, okay. This is just okay. an example of how you're treated. But Interesting. let me give you some ethical statements from the Hadith about it about ethics. A Muslim okay. does not lie to another Muslim, except for the three reasons just given. A Muslim okay. doesn't cheat another Muslim in business. A Muslim doesn't touch another Muslim. And a Muslim doesn't kill another Muslim. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard, okay. do you notice something about these four ethical principles I've just related to you? Yeah, the most obvious thing is that what about everybody else? Ah, the everybody else. We well, see the everybody else are kafir, and so therefore mm -hmm. there's a different set of rules. And those rules are quite simple. If it will advance Islam, you can be friendly. You can be, you know, whatever you need to be. But uh -huh. you can also, to advance Islam, you can, you can deceive and lie. I think it's intriguing that one of the 99 names of Allah is that he is the greatest deceiver. Now think about yeah, that. Yeah. Do, we know, do we know where that exactly comes from, that particular quote? You know, I don't. I can... Manipulate interesting my screen while we're talking here. I think I can come up with it. Okay, yeah, that would just be yeah. really interesting to to cite because, um, yeah, Allah being the greatest deceiver, Allah has a lot of different qualities according to the scriptures, right? I mean, some, some of those some of those qualities seem to be opposites. Well, some of those qualities are. Let's put it this way: some of the qualities of Allah are. I don't want him moving in next door as a neighbor. Yeah, I, yeah, that that actually brings up something interesting. I was planning on on this show to uh, kind of out myself because, and you know that I'm a little unusual as a radio host. But I, I in order for to be clear with full disclosure, I have to say I, I I think probably Muhammad actually is the prophet of Allah and the slave of Allah. The things that he describes, so I don't disbelieve that. Um, I'm a believer up to that point. My only question is when you get into the character of Allah, and that's oh. what you're actually talking about. <laughs> so, in other words, Muhammad is the Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. That's a given. But yeah, I think he really is, about, and I and I think he really had the experience, you know, with the supernatural being coming to him. That all feels completely uh, real to me when I read about it. Well, I, you know, yeah, I again, I, I just I just have the question of the. The character of that being and the character of Allah, based on what, uh, well, Muhammad didn't write these things, right? He, well, I know we're jumping all over the place, but I, I really wanted to ask you about this, just so it's clear to everybody. We have the three scriptures now. Muhammad didn't write those as as they are now, right? So well, what form what form did they come from Muhammad in, and what changes did they get into in their current universally accepted form? Well, now this is interesting. The Quran of Muhammad's day was an oral tradition. 
Right. This, this is made exceptionally clear. Now, the story I'm getting ready to tell you is the story that, when I use the term myth, I don't mean in terms of a lie. I mean, it's the grand story which goes beyond, explains more than what it appears. That's a rough definition of a myth. But anyway, in the, uh, in the Quran, its story is this. When Muhammad died, there was no written Quran. Now, there were bits and pieces. It is said that the Quran was recorded on palm leaves, uh, the shoulder bones of animals, and the hearts of men. So in other words, okay. little notes were taken. Now, okay. there were large groups of people who had memorized the Quran, and I think there's the Arabic word for that is a reciter, but I'm not sure. But anyway, a whole bunch of them got killed at a battle, the Battle of Yamama. And so uh, some of the Muslims came to the caliph and said, look, we have a problem here. We're losing people left and right. And now then there's beginning to be the ones who are left have arguments amongst themselves about what is the actual verse. So there was variation from one person to the other. So he appointed a uh, scribe to be secretary and to collect all of the known bits and pieces of the Quran. Which, which caliph was this, caliph? Uthman. Uthman. Was he number two? Three. Three, okay. And well, was the, the secretary... He's, he's going to come to a bad end. He's going to be killed by the grandson of Abu Bakr. Being caliph was a, was a dangerous business. And Abu Bakr was the first caliph, right? Yes. Okay, and this, was the secretary named Syed or Saeed or something? No, I don't think so. But I, then okay. again, I'm not really remembering. But okay. The point I might right. want to make about this story is, is after the um, secretary was appointed, he was told to give, if there were discussions about... Um, Oh, what do we call it? Whether you have a minor variation of a language, dialect, they were always mm -hmm. to put it in the dialect of the uh, Quraysh, which was Muhammad's tribe. Now, here's the okay. important point about the story. This is 15 years after the Quran is, after Muhammad is dead. Then mm -hmm. what did Uthman do with all of the bits and pieces of the Qurans that he had, the source documents, the original documents? He burned them. Now, what right. is the only yeah. reason you can think of as to why a man would burn the original records? To make complete, consen of the records. complete consensus about which version is correct. It would be the yes, only you, one in existence. You now have consensus because all of those texts which were dis dissenters have been destroyed. Now, this is ironic because the uh, Muslims raised almighty hell when Terry Jones, the minister down in Florida, said, I'm going to burn a Quran as a public act of condemning Islam, they went nuts. The front page of the New York Times covered it. There was, there was panic and alarm throughout the State Department, the Pentagon, the presidency, because this man might burn a book, by the way, that he bought. So it's his book. Mm -hmm. Everyone overlooks the fact that the very Quran they're so worried about being burnt was created by burning the original source material. So it's like, okay, it was okay for Uthman to burn the originals, but since then, oh, we're not supposed to burn any of them, because that would be offensive to Allah. Okay, so, so originally, during Muhammad's time, there were pieces of the recorded Quran around, right? And then some of them were just remembered. Right. Is that accurate? That's it. And, okay, and then Uthman was the first one who said... Um, this could all disappear. We better get it recorded in a permanent form. 
and he must have collected all available pieces exactly as well as as well as all available oral accounts exactly okay that up to that up to that point he was doing a great job because that's exactly what you would want to do you want to reconstruct the original from the source material you have yeah it's about, and and how long after muhammad's death was that done 15 years okay all right not that long really i mean you can no. remember things yeah, people I, say 15 years ago Right. Earlier when we talked about the fact that it was 150 to 200 years to write down the Hadith and the Sirah, that's too much time. But you're not well, even one generation. That is, the people who were doing the work of the secretary, he knew Muhammad personally. So therefore, it's conceivable that they could reconstruct it. But now here's, the, here's the other kicker about this. In the Hadith, it is referred to the fact that there were, I believe, seven different versions of the Quran and different dialects. It may have been nine, it may have been seven, I don't really remember the number. But in the original, it was released in different forms of the Arabic language. And yet the one we have today is only one. So once again, we, we will never know the original Qurans, with a plural there, what they were because they were destroyed, but we do know that they existed. Okay, but for 135 years, the Quran was the only Muslim scripture, right? Exactly. Now, there we have an oral tradition of what people remembered Muhammad said, but there was no actual text. Uh, so, you mean equivalent to the Sirah and the Hadith and stuff mm-hmm. like that? Okay, okay. And then, and then some, somebody got the idea that the Quran by itself was really not all they needed. They, they needed to write down his life and everything that he did so people could emulate it. Correct. And that must, that must have led to the compilation of those two scriptures. Right. By the way, in the background here, I've Googled. Remember, we were talking about uh, the deceiver. I'm going to give you a verse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Now, the Arab, the Arabic word for uh, deceiver is mekra. Now, here it is. This is from Quran 3:54. But they, the Jews, were deceptive, and Allah was deceptive. For Allah is the best of deceivers. Okay. Okay. Okay, interesting. And, and that's one of his 99 names, by the way. Allah is the best of deceivers. Okay, but of course, since Allah has perfect judgment about everything, he would only use deception when it's good for Islam and the truth and, you know, that sort yes. of thing. <laughs> that's true, Richard, but this is not exactly the image of God that most people have, being a just and fair being. To be, I mean, because look, if Allah wants to deceive me... I, how would I know the difference? And then he's going to hold, and by the way, in other places in the Quran, it says that Allah causes the kafir to be blind and have mm-hmm. plug up his ear so he can't hear the truth. Right. Then he's going to punish him because he wouldn't respond to the truth of the Islam. Yeah, I'm familiar with that particular strategy. So it's, uh, uh, like I say, Allah moving in as a next door neighbor, he doesn't have some characteristics which I would uh, normally want in a neighbor. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, boy. I, Actually, the word I use is fascinating. I think all of this material is fascinating. The reason is. I think it's fascinating is, is it all is nothing like what you thought it would be. That is, when I tell you that Allah is the greatest of deceivers, you're like, jeez, I may be whatever kind of God-believing or even atheist-believing creature you are. That's Even an atheist doesn't think that if there were a God, he was a deceiver. What's he's also very, the best plotter and schemer. What, what, what's really interesting to me is that regardless of what qualities are attributed to Allah, 
once people are committed there, they will only think of that as something good no matter what it is. This is true. It's um, This causes you to have message. disturbing thoughts, does it not? Well, it certainly could if you allow them. But um, right now, I, I think it's just um, interesting to see how this kind of goes together because when somebody is captured in a in a battle and I, I this brings up god there's so many questions i mean we could go on 10 hours but at least we'll have further chapters that we can continue in but what i was going to ask you is and this came up in my discussion a few days ago with the teachers of islam and that is that the battles that muhammad and his followers or his designated battle leaders were in those is this a true statement that those were almost always for conquest, or is it to defend against unjust attack against them? You know, Islam goes on and on that their fighting was defensive. That's what I, I want, just heard. Yeah. yeah, now here's the deal. Let's say that you're in Medina, and Muhammad's in Medina, and now then he tells you to go attack a caravan. How is that defensive? Well, the caravan is the, is the caravan of their enemies, so therefore they're attacking their enemies. I see, okay. Okay, well, you always attack your enemies. So, I mean, but it's an odd thing to say that that is a defensive move. And when it's Muhammad left Medina to go to Kaibar, which was a Jewish town that was 100 yeah. miles away, yeah. how was that defensive? When Muhammad left Arabia to go into Syria at Tabuk, and there was another battle there, how is that defensive? When you leave your own country, so, if I, when I think of defensive, I think of being inside the walls and you're being attacked. Now, at the Battle of the Trench, this was exactly true. And it could even be said at the Battle of Badr that it was true that because the army came up from Mecca. But why did the army come up from Mecca to be outside of Medina? Well, because Muhammad kept raiding their caravans. And they were there to dish out some pain to make him stop. They, they thought he was a world-class deceiver and running an organized crime business. But okay. Islam counts those as defensive. So this business of defensive and offensive is one that needs to be examined very closely. But uh, it, there were, it reminds me of when two kids in the playground are each saying he started it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, I never thought about that. But that plea he started it is a plea of I was just fighting defensively. Uh, yeah. If they knew how to say that in the playground, they would say that. Yes. <laughs> so it just, they have to get older first. Right. So that's really interesting. So the, the battle, yeah, in fact, that was one that was quoted to me in a discussion recently was the battle. Of, is that Battle of the Trench or Trenches? Singular. Trench. Battle of the Trench. Battle of the Trench was definitely defensive. And the reason that they just had to kill 800 Jewish men in that other town, which I guess, was that 100 miles away or? No, 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 that was, that was in Medina. They were the, last, were the third and last okay. tribe in Medina. Yeah, so the reason they had to kill those people uh, was also defensive, well, not defensive, but just for justice, because those people had allowed a rear attack intended to wipe out Muhammad's good guys, and therefore they had to kill those Jews. And do you know anything about that? Well, you pretty much told the story. That was the reason they gave for it. The, the interesting thing is, no matter what reasons you give for the little stories, that is, if you want to take it piece by piece, in the end, five years after Muhammad moved to the town of Medina, was mm -hmm. taken in as a persecuted migrant, five years later, 
there were no Kafirs left in Medina, and there was only one Jew left, and the town had been half Jewish, and the one Jew who was left was a sex slave. So somehow or another, all of this wound up with Islam, with Islam being completely triumphant over all. So call it defensive, call it offensive, but I tell you the change was there. And we're seeing the change, these same changes take place at the time of this recording. This is the day after the Christmas Village truck jihad in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is, is that Berlin is, and the Germans are now receiving a lesson about how, what it means to live amongst Islam and that what is the future of Germany, which is this will continue to go on and on until every German is a Muslim. Okay, so it's not necessarily that they just all realized that this was, you know, all the correct religion. It was could have been other, other things too. In other words, um, the desire not to be killed, stuff like that. Well, there is that. Although we've covered this before, Muhammad managed to take that simple urge of wanting to be alive and transform it into, uh, as uh, Osama bin Laden said, "We will defeat you because we love death and you love life." It, yeah, that's a, kind of a strong advantage in, in a battle, I guess, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, the only thing that helps us is is that in many times the jihadis are not very competent in the battlefield, but they're willing to die. Yeah, I mean, they're not too worried. I, I would assume, I shouldn't speak for them, but I would assume that they're not too worried about whether they're comp- competent, because if they fail, they win. Exactly. I mean, if you're a battlefield general, you have now solved one of your biggest problems. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually pretty brilliant. Oh, so I'll say this again. Muhammad was the most brilliant military leader ever existed in the human race. Yeah, yeah, I'm really getting that impression, definitely. So, um, if you happen to be a slave, for whatever reason, you were captured in a battle or something like that, and you don't feel like becoming a Muslim, then the course of your life has some problems in it, right? Well, for one thing, you don't know what's going to happen the next day. You can get sold or bought by a group or anything like that or, or made to do. Are there any limits on, on what you can do with a Kafir slave? Now, that's an interesting question. I don't think so. You're supposed to treat them well. And now we do mm-hmm. know this. Amongst the slave history of the uh, Muslims in Arabia, uh, we've already been over the fact that a white woman was the preferred slave for sex. But white slaves were also used in what we would call white-collar jobs. The black slaves were used in the funky, rough, dangerous work, frontline military, salt mines. They were given the crude, hard outdoor work. So amongst their slaves, they, they separated them into what capacity they expected them to serve in. Now, there's one very, there are two slaves of Allah. I don't know if they still do this or not. The... Uh, uh, what are we, the keepers of the mosque of Medina have traditionally always been castrated African males who were slaves. Okay. I, I don't know if they still do that or not, but I, f- I found that note about slavery to be interesting. Yeah, because the only people subject to castration would obviously be slaves. Nobody else would uh, probably sign up for it. Uh, I'm not signing up, Richard. Okay. No, I wasn't really asking you right now, but just, <laughs> just as kind, kind of context, you know, it seems like that would be only the slaves, and, and it does make you wonder if that is still practiced today or not. And also, why it was practiced, I guess, 
the reason it would be practiced is because you wouldn't have to worry about trusting them with uh, women that were around. Oh, 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 you, oh, I forgot about this. The guardians of the harem, both whites oh, okay. and blacks were castrated in order that they could work in the harem. And this is even given to you uh, as to when, w- how women, Muslim women are supposed to wear the veil. And one of the places you don't have to wear a veil is in front of the castrated slave. Okay. Because the whole purpose of the veil is to prevent hanky-panky. Well, if you oh. don't have anything to hanky and panky with, you don't have to be protected from it. They can see okay. whatever. Got it, got it. Interesting. Okay. And, is hanky-panky uh, too old a word that people will know what that means? I think, yeah, most people know at least one of those words. That, that should work. <laughs> um, and I was going to ask you, too, um, since I think I overlooked this before, we talked about the slave trade that brought captured, kidnapped African people over to be slaves in America, and that the slave traders on the ships were could have been European or from anywhere, but the ones who actually kidnapped people to become slaves to send to America, they were, from what you said before, I think almost exclusively um, Muslims, that they weren't necessarily Arabs, they could have been African Muslims, right? But, but now then the here, ones. this is interesting. I have okay. a picture of, I have a book uh, by one of the most famous Arab slave traders, Abu Tip, mm-hmm. and he looks as black as any Nigerian, but he calls himself an Arab. Now, okay. there's one of the interesting qualities about, we've never covered this, but who is an Arab? An Arab is a language group. So, uh, anyone who speaks Arabic is considered to be Arabic. Oh, in culture. Which is I thought you, I thought you had to live in the Arabic area, not in, in the rest of Africa. Well, all I know is is that Africans who speak Arabic frequently claim themselves to be Arabs. Okay. And Abu Tip uh, was, like I say, if you, I have a, he was a famous slaver and on the east coast of Africa, and he called himself an Arab. And like just looking at the picture we have of him, actually, I just realized he had to have been very wealthy to have had a picture taken of him. Painted do, do, yeah. Do, do we have any idea um, when people started being kidnapped in Africa to be sent over to America? We know it preceded Muhammad. It preceded Muhammad. Okay, that's interesting. So, Um, like everything else, if you know Zoroastrianism, and if you know uh, Jewish law, and indeed the, um, there's another, there's a funny source of Jewish traditions, and you know the New Testament and the Old Testament, everything you see in the Quran is derivative. That is, yeah, we've heard that before. There's only two new ideas in the Quran. Everything else is derivative. That is, it's taken from somewhere else. The two new ideas in the Quran are, in Mecca, the new idea is Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. Then in the mm-hmm. Medinan Quran, the new idea that's everything else is found somewhere else is, if you don't believe that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah, you can be harmed. That is, mm-hmm. 24% of the Quran written in Medina is about jihad. So, uh, it's, anyway, I just find those that to be interesting. That is interesting, yeah. And that brings up one other point, too, that I, I kind of skipped over, and that was that um, since there was 135 years where there was only one Muslim scripture, one, one scripture of Islam, which was the right. Quran, um, later on, you, you had mentioned in our previous lessons that you couldn't really understand the Quran without the other two scriptures. So, exactly. how did that impact its understanding during those 135 years? 
Well, there were always, there was an oral tradition of the Hadith. So that oh, was okay. what was being okay. used. What, what Bukhari did was to record all the Hadith. So in a sense, he did for the Hadith what Uthman's intellectuals did for the Quran. Okay. That is, they took the oral tradition and met, wrote it down on paper. Okay. Now, by the way, the, the Chinese have a wonderful expression about writing in oral tradition, which is the palest ink lasts longer than the strongest word. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that appears to be true. So, now that was, you talked about the Hadith being around all the time in oral form until it was written down, but what about the Sirah, which I guess was Muhammad's life, right? What about same that? thing, same okay. thing. It was that it was it was around in oral tradition, but it was not written down. So what Isak did was to uh, write it down, and what Bukhari did was to write it down. So they took an oral tradition. the The thing of it is, is we've been over this ground before. But if you write something down two hundred years after its occurrence, you've got ten generations where one generation has to tell another, and there's just my goodness gracious, there's yeah. going to be variation. Yeah. Yeah, that that is really fascinating, and it's pretty hard to go back now, before the written version was compiled, and learn very much of exactly what was said before that, right? I mean, is, is there any way to do that or not? I don't know. What I do, Richard, is I just accept it as a given. Muslims accept the Hadith as a given, the Quran as a given, and so I just say, okay, for purposes of the game, and I use game in its biggest sense here, yeah, I will yeah. agree that I will accept your hypothesis. This is the real Muhammad. Because, okay. to tell you the Yeah, because truth, it doesn't matter anything that differs from it, nobody's following anyway. Right, exactly. When I first started reading the Hadith, my impulse was, man, if I'd have had the access to this stuff, I'd have burned it. Why did they even write all this down? One of the things that gives some veracity to the Hadith and the Sirah, and I've attacked it as not being true in small points, it just couldn't be, is that some of these things are so horrifying that they must have been real because I wouldn't make up some of this stuff about my worst enemy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and sometimes the really severe stuff is easier to remember, too, because of that. Oh, it does sort of stand out, doesn't it? You know the yeah. most, you know, do you know the fact that spread the fastest like wildfire about Muhammad that everybody knows? He married Aisha at six and consummated the marriage at nine. Yeah. I've never met anyone who didn't know that assertion about Muhammad. <clears throat> Interesting. I just find there are other things that he did that people don't know, but that one everybody's heard. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder, um, and, and, you know, we'll have to wrap up in a minute too, but I, I just wonder... Like so many other things that we've looked at, was that uncommon in Arabic culture prior to Islam? Child well, marriage. I'm, 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 say it again, Richard. Was child marriage like that oh, uncommon? Yes, it was. Okay. It must have been common. Otherwise, he wouldn't have proposed the idea. We do you know said it was, it was common, not uncommon. Yes. yes. Okay. When he okay. suggested to Abu Bakr that he marry his daughter... Yeah. Abu Bakr said, well, we can't do that because we're brothers. And Muhammad says, oh, no, 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 we're brothers in the religion. We're not brothers in the, in the flesh. It's okay for yeah. me to marry her. Yeah. There's no, uh, what do they call laws, that, miscegenation law that applies here. So, well, he, so he wasn't objecting because of age. He was objecting because of relationship like that. Right, right, right. Now, so once Muhammad convinced him, no, 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 we're not really brothers. We're spiritual brothers, not blood brothers. Abu Bakr says, fine. Abu Bakr 
was the most faithful servant that Muhammad had. Everything, everything Muhammad did, when Muhammad came out with his story about the night journey and people mocked and ridiculed him that he had gone to Jerusalem and to seventh heaven, Abu yeah. Bakr says, anything he says is true. I believe everything he says, even if it sounds ridiculous. That probably had something to do with him becoming the first caliph as well, I would imagine. You know, you might <laughs> have said, he's, referred, he's the, one of the few people referred to in the Quran. Okay, okay. He was, one, right. he was one of those who hid in the cave. Yeah, 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 amazing. It, it's just an incredible adventure story, really. It I mean, is. It is an adventure uh, story. A vast epic. And um, so we're going to have to wrap up, but if we had to kind of give a summary of slavery according to Islam, is there any one point that you think would kind of summarize what we've been over in that way? Any Kafir can be enslaved, and slavery works for the good of Islam. It is okay. Slavery is approved by Allah, and it is part right. of the Sunnah of Muhammad. Slavery is good. Okay. Sounds great. We will uh, continue with the next chapter shortly. Okay, so there goes Dr. Warner. And um, I want to I reiterate that this is not to criticize Muslims at all, okay? I want to differentiate between... All the millions and millions of people, you know, over a billion, 1.7, some people say, uh, people that are born into Islam or, or are living in it, and Islam itself. Those are different things. Because Islam itself comes from Muhammad and what he was teaching on behalf of Allah. It doesn't come from scholars. It doesn't come from imams. It doesn't come from, you know, teachers of Islam. It comes from Muhammad and Allah. And we're not picking out Islam to critique arbitrarily if the Christians were going crazy and carjacking everybody and raping everybody, we would be talking about their belief system and looking at where this behavior comes from. But um, because of the waves of killings, especially all across Europe, but now in the U.S. spreading as well, killings, rapes, carjackings, etc., screaming Allah Akbar, so there's no question at all what it's about. It's not just a coincidence that it's being done by people who follow Islam. So what does it mean? You have to think about this and not just, you know, go along semi-conscious in a program uh, because our whole point here is to become conscious. So it's true there, you know, it, it seems to me there is a spiritual reality Great spiritual teachers all over the world, back before recorded history even, acknowledge that, that it's based on love and service to everyone else, not to one group, where, like what we're talking about with Dr. Warner, where you're nice to other Muslims but not to Kafirs. It's based, real spirituality, spirituality is based on love and service of everybody. Um, and because the, the advanced people that have become conscious realize that the others are themselves. That's why the idea of serving others as yourself is because they are yourself. Now, Muhammad got impressed with the angel and gave himself up to following orders, which eventually became orders for terrorism. And no doubt there was a rush of power and the exhilaration of killing and stealing. And he did not question, you know, is this really a good idea? He just was really into it from what we can tell by reading. But it's not just Muhammad, it's all of us. 
So there's great reason. I mean, it's all of us in some way. I'm not saying that everybody's doing terrorism, but everybody's subject to programming. And you can get into things like this without really being conscious and clear and thinking, what is it that I'm doing? And is this really a good idea or not? So, you know, just put yourself through an imaginary scenario. If you see a supernatural being and it starts giving you orders, you know, say it's a, whatever you think might impress you, up in the clouds, you know, with pillars of fire, lightning bolts all over the place, whatever kind of display it is. And then after you're suitably impressed by the display, it starts giving you orders and those orders morph into uh, things that you should know are crimes against yourself and other people. At what point do you say, I don't think I'm going to do this? It's very similar to if you're in the military and you're given orders to murder a whole village that is innocent people and kids and everything, and everybody around you is following the orders and really getting into it, and they'll kill you if you want to leave that unit or not follow orders, what do you do? This really is a question for people in any belief system that they look at and it's ordering them to do things that they don't think are ethical. What does that mean? It's the same with hypnosis of the media nonsense, the political correctness, the censorship. You know, you have to check inside yourself and don't fall for it. And if you're in any kind of belief system, it doesn't even have to be a religion. It can be some kind of a, a terrorist group. Um, you know, KKK is typical one that's given as an example, but Black Lives Matter is another one, and, you know, there are many others, or, or in some eugenics movement like Margaret Sanger started that became Planned Parenthood later, um, or what the Germans were doing in the 1930s. Do you go along with it if everybody else is doing it as if it's normal? Or are you strong enough in yourself so that you check it? Somebody get, offers you $40 an hour and you really need money, and they say all you need to do is be a member of Black Lives Matter and start burning buildings and breaking into shops and killing police and then all, and or beating up people and and then you get forty dollars an hour it's a great job maybe tax free I'm sure tax free and um, what do you do if you need the money what do you do or to work for Monsanto poisoning the food supply what do you do let's say they let's say you're an, a lawyer and you, you're hired with this great salary to defend the vaccine companies or Monsanto or the, um, the nuclear power plants, what do you do? Do you take the money? How do you not take the money? How do you survive? These are real-world questions. So don't just criticize somebody to be in a belief system and saying, well, I never would have fallen for that. That's not necessarily true unless you're really strong. And the only way that I know is to get so connected inside yourself because everybody's got that higher level guidance, everybody. It's not about what religion you belong to that determines that if you're a human being and you're connected back to your source, which all of us are, we wouldn't be alive, then you have that and it's just forgotten. So I really want to encourage people to um, reconnect and it's really part of health and that's what we talk about you know all the time on on the saturday show too so i want to invite you personally also if you'd like to come and discuss any of this stuff or anything else connected with health or consciousness or life issues or anything um 
Tune in Saturday mornings. I mean, you have to do that live if you want to talk with us. But it's every Saturday, 8 o'clock in the morning on uh, Pacific Time, 11 o'clock Eastern Time, and the number to listen. If you don't have a computer, you can listen on 657-383-1002, and that number allows you to call in as well. Um, all the archives are on our site, lostartsradio.com, where you'll also see uh, new videos and articles up almost every day. Uh, the Alex Jones incredibly good news service is there, embedded with almost all the commercials gone. You can listen to it much more quickly and efficiently. It's As long as we're allowed to have it, it's just this incredible source of world and national news that I think it's a very good resource. There's also a forum that Doug has set up recently. I'm trying to have time to get over there myself and take a look at it. It's free. Any of this stuff can be discussed during the week or, you know, anytime. There's also a new checklist that I've been promising for a while, and it's finally up there. It's what I give to private um, consulting clients that have private sessions with me. And I'm, I'm still offering some of those when my time allows uh, for people that uh, all the money that goes to Lost Arts Research Institute so that we can keep going. And that if you have the money and you've got anything you'd like to really look at privately with me, uh, health issues that are happening or anything else in life that, that you know, you'd like some support on, that's a way to support the Research Institute, which we really need right now. Uh, the other is if you have plenty of money and you want to support us, just you know, go and donate at lostartsradio.com or lostartsresearchinstitute.org. Um, only if you have money that, you know, is available for that sort of thing. If you're struggling for food, money, and everything, don't do that, okay? Just send us good wishes, prayers, and tell other people about the show. Um, when you're working during the week to do things in your own life, remember Ho'oponopono that we went over a few weeks ago, and the basic idea is... You can heal the world by healing inside yourself. And that the thing that's so hard to grasp is that is not a philosophy. That's a real-life practice that works. So try it out. Let me know what happens. You can always reach me at richard at lostartsradio.com, and I will see you next Saturday. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash lostartsradio. Visit our website at lostartsradio.com for...